my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas. Welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I'm your host, Joe Fakash, and today we are staying in Ohio and going up to the town of Mentor in the home named Lawnfield, home of James Garfield, our 20th president of the United States. Before we get going too far, I do want to remind you about checking out last season's episode, where you'll hear a lot about the rise of James Garfield, his education, his family, as well as some of the odd quirks about his personality. I know that I emphasized just how brilliant James Garfield was, and so you'll get a real taste of that if you listen to James Garfield in Moreland Hills. I do also want to recommend that you be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com where you'll find recommended readings as well as links to other readings, my photographs, which were especially important for a week like this, where the home, I think I can try to do it somewhat justice, but looking at the photographs does a little bit more. There's also a link to help support the podcast through donating. I appreciate all of the support through liking and subscribing in the various social media platforms, as well as with your podcast player. If you write a review, that is very helpful as well. And then, of course, if you can help support financially, that would be a big help right now as I am planning these multiple trips throughout the summer to bring you more photographs and more information. And so hopefully if you're able to, you will donate and help support Visiting the Presidents, which also helps support hosting the website and the podcast for future generations, hopefully. Those who've already helped support the podcast financially are Sammy and Tom Fakosh, Nancy and Terry Workamp, Debbie and Dennis Fakosh, Harvey and Casey Hyman, Connie and Adam Luck, Jim and Catherine Hyman, Gail Rittenhouse, Sean and Liz Jones, Stephen Gilroy, Kurt Dion, AJ Mira, April McKenzie, Matt and Megan Hoekstetler, Caitlin Callahan, Brittany and Keith Mellon, Jim and Laurel Brailer, Eric Engartner, Patricia Argentina, Kara Steiner, Jamie and Ted Wilson, Candy and Ben Phelps, Lana Demers and Craig Hunter, and Andrew Alexander. Thank you all so much for your financial support for anybody who's helping to spread the word about visiting the presidents. We're also getting set for the season two Grover Cleveland question and answer episode. So if you have a particular question that you want to have answered on the show, please be reaching out either on the Instagram or Twitter, Facebook. You can have my email address at jdfaykao at gmail.com and send me your question. I loved last season's question and answer episode, and I think this one's going to be even better. So make sure you send in your question. Now, like I said, when we had left off with James Garfield, he was getting his political career underway. He had followed up his service in the Civil War with a distinguished career in the United States House of Representatives, where he was trying to figure out just how much of a radical he wanted to be within the radical Republican branch. He was not thrilled at all with his fellow Ohioan, Ulysses Grant, in either of the elections that he ran in, but he focused on financial issues in the House, serving as the chair for the Banking and Currency Commission, and then on the Appropriations Committee, as well as being a member of the Ways and Means Committee. Garfield may have been our most talented orator ever elected president, and I know some of you might dispute that. We can think of others who wrote really good speeches, and even some who delivered some pretty well. But in terms of being like out and out renowned for his oratory, that is really how Garfield got a lot of his renown and where he really made an impact. And it's just, again, one of the things we'll mention in this season's episode and then certainly looking to next season is just how much of a loss his assassination will be. His political career hinged on his brilliance of being able to hold forth on multiple complex topics. 
and he might have had the most direct experience of any of our presidents since Martin Van Buren in terms of being in the House and being up on issues both state and national, where we have been talking in recent weeks about people who were either confined to their states or really didn't have the political prowess. But James Garfield is really kind of attuned to both. It's always a tragedy when somebody's assassinated, but it feels especially so with James Garfield. Garfield had a pretty incorruptible reputation, but it takes a real hit after the Credit Mobier scandal emerges, and it was revealed that Garfield had accepted 10 shares of the stock and a loan of $329. That number is very specific, but it becomes a kind of rallying cry for his critics. Now, the details are somewhat murky. Garfield would always claim kind of innocence and ignorance, but historians today have pretty much pieced together that he knew more than he let on when he's going to be interviewed in front of Congress. He claimed that he tried to pay off the loan and turn down the stock, and that the transactions did not in any way impact his voting or his performance. At first, his constituents will be pretty angry, but then it's revealed that there was a forgery that was being cast as evidence against him, and that forgery contained two pretty glaring spelling errors. But because of his brilliance, which is pretty well known at that point, it is outed immediately, and the controversy kind of dies thereafter. So any of you who are sticklers for spelling or grammarians, you can take solace in the fact that that really does get James Garfield out of a pinch here. Like I said, it's clear that Garfield was not entirely truthful, but we also can't really connect whether that money made an impact on any of his decision making. In 1876, he will support his fellow Buckeye, Rutherford Hayes, and he'll even be appointed to the Electoral Commission that decides the vote. The two become pretty close, and their families are very close as well. And so the idea of him serving on that commission maybe raises some eyebrows. Garfield actually toyed with the idea of joining the Senate. He was looking for a next step when Treasury Secretary John Sherman evacuates that seat. But Hayes will ask Garfield to stay in the House, where he thinks he can do the most good. Garfield would then be elevated to the House Minority Leader in 1877. And by 1880, his state legislature will have nominated him for a seat in the Senate, and he would win that pretty easily. Now, interestingly enough, one other item that I came across in this period before he runs and wins the presidency is he actually develops a mathematical trapezoid proof of the Pythagorean theorem. He was just talking about it randomly with his fellow congressmen and develops this proof all on his own. And it is one that holds up and people recognize him for it. And again, it's just one of those things that kind of gets lost in the shelf. Pretty remarkable. You really can't see too many of our more recent presidents uh, being able to do this. When it comes to James Garfield and the loves of his life, James had two long-term girlfriends, including a woman named Mary Hubel, a student of his who many thought he was engaged to, but who he considered a friend. He also dated a woman named Rebecca Selleck at the time that he was courting Lucretia Rudolph, who we'll talk about in just a second, and both women attended his college graduation. He broke off his relationship with Rebecca, but Lucretia obviously is going to nurse fears that James was still in love with her, and it will cause huge problems throughout their marriage. And we'll talk about where he's also going to be pretty inconsistent about how much he wants to be married and be a father. Later, James will carry on a extramarital relationship with a New York Times reporter named Lucia Calhoun when he was serving in the Civil War. We don't know too much about her other than that she was pretty forward-thinking and wrote about modern women. 
and that is in quotes. James eventually confessed about the relationship to Lucretia. Lucretia thought James had been off in Washington, D.C., recovering and doing something administrative, and instead he's also going to be carrying on this relationship. He'll eventually confess it, but she will make him break off things in person with Lucia. And when James confesses, when James tries to break it off with her, he finds out she was already engaged to another man. James also confessed his other relationships, including with a student when he was at the Eclectic Institute. He also destroyed any records of his relationships. Now, (laughs) other than that, he is going to be devoted in his later years to his very patient wife, Lucretia. Lucretia Rudolph, who he called Crete, was born to Zebulon and Arabella Rudolph, and what a group of names here, in Hiram, Ohio in 1832. Zebulon founded the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute in Hiram, and Lucretia was raised surrounded by knowledge. But life was rough on the frontier as well. Her reading would be a welcome respite. She'll meet James at the Geauga Seminary, where they are both classmates, and they attend the Eclectic Institute where they began dating, with James impressed by her intellect, if not exactly pleased that she was so forward-thinking on women's rights. While James went to Williams College, Lucretia stayed in Cleveland to teach, and they postponed a wedding so that James could earn more money and that they could be married two years after his graduation. James also starts to express some doubts about the very institution of marriage, and we talked about his unique approach to some of his different philosophies in season one. They were also too poor to afford a honeymoon, and they lived above a boarding house in Hiram. They are going to have a very fractious first couple years with James confessing that he thought the marriage was a mistake. He grew distant from her and spent more of his time focused on his burgeoning political career and rarely coming home, even when they start to have children. The Civil War breaks out and James was becoming more emotionally distant. We talked about how he has this extramarital relationship. And Lucretia estimates that in their first five years of being married, they were together just about 20 weeks face to face. Only after the war is over and lose their three-year-old did James decide to focus on his family. He and Lucretia took a tour of Europe, and when they returned, they were happily married, finally. When James was elected president, Lucretia paled in the shadow of her two most immediate predecessors, Julia Grant and Lucy Hayes, as Lucretia really didn't like mixing with strangers. She didn't like small talk, and those are going to be pretty much in demand. You might know that we didn't have an office for the First Lady to do all of her hosting and help her with planning. That was all on the First Lady. And after Mary Todd Lincoln and then Julia Dett Grant and then Lucy Webb Hayes, where they elevated the role, now suddenly whoever comes after is going to really be overwhelmed by how they have to fill that position. And Lucretia really doesn't like the idea of having to socialize and host quite that same way. I was reading about how she sent out like a blanket invitation to all of the Senate and all of the House, and it made a lot of the members feel like they were being personally excluded rather than everybody being included. So you also have some of those ways of thinking in that period as well. Lucretia was like Lucy in one thing in that they were trying to locate the histories of the executive mansion furnishings so that she could restore the home to its glory. But she is going to contract malaria early on in April of 1881, just a month after they get into the executive mansion, and she's in need of convalescing. It was going to be 
to visit her in Elberon, New Jersey, in June of 1881, where James is going to be shot in the train station that we'll talk about later and then in season three. When James dies, Lucretia went to Europe to try to escape her grief before settling back in her home in Mentor. Lucretia expands the home after receiving over $350,000 from the American people, and that the Congress is going to finally approve $5,000 annual pension for First Ladies. And so with that, Lucretia is going to build a memorial library as a tribute to James, and then has it as a repository for his books and his papers, and then installs a vault for the very important personal effects. Lucretia will take to wintering in Pasadena, California, and she'll be there in 1918 when she dies at the age of 85. She'll be then taken back home to be put to rest next to her husband in his memorial tomb in Cleveland's Lakeview Cemetery. Lucretia and James had four sons and one daughter who lived into adulthood. Harry Augustus graduated from Williams College and Columbia Law, and he taught contract law at Western Reserve was the first professor of politics at Princeton, where he served under Dean Woodrow Wilson. Harry will return to Williams College as its president and was named by President Wilson to the Price Committee during World War I before returning to Williams as its president once again. James Rudolph is going to follow in his brother's footsteps and going to Williams and Columbia, graduating in the same class at Columbia. He practiced law and then served in the state senate on the U.S. Civil Service Commission and then in the Department of Commerce and the Department of Labor. President Theodore Roosevelt will appoint him as his Secretary of the Interior, and incoming President Taft's dismissal of Garfield is going to contribute to the falling out of Roosevelt and Taft. Mary or Molly went to private schools and married one of Garfield's private secretaries. Irwin went to Williams and Columbia Law as well as his older brothers, becoming a partner at a firm in Boston. And then Abram went to Williams and Massachusetts Institute of Technology before settling in Cleveland, where he served on the City Planning Commission. Now, in terms of his relationship with his sons, according to Joshua Kendall, he is going to be the most tender and devoted of fathers. And he is going to insist on bringing his whole family with him to Washington when he serves as a congressman, not wanting to be apart from them for fear of, quote, growing apart from them in experience, culture, and knowledge of the world. Harry and James will be by his side when he is shot, and they're going to be really scarred by that. They had been expecting to go to Williams College to get a tour from their father where he was expected to speak. And you can imagine just how much of an imprint watching your father get shot and then seeing him waste away as he did would have on those boys. In 1880, the Republicans assembled in Chicago for their convention. And with Rutherford Hayes having already projected that he was going to step down, the frontrunner is going to be former President Ulysses Grant. The stalwart faction was pushing for Ulysses Grant, while the other Republican faction, called the Half-Breeds, were split between Senator James Blaine from Maine and Secretary of State John Sherman, also from Ohio. Garfield would be serving as the leader of the Sherman faction and gave the nominating speech. The three major candidates will deadlock over 33 ballots, none of them getting a majority or being able to maintain momentum. Suddenly, Wisconsin's delegation voted in favor of James Garfield, who at first resists, saying he is not interested, but then is overwhelmed as the anti-Grant forces coalesce behind him over the next two ballots. 
He'll receive the nomination, and then the stalwarts are going to be placated with the vice presidential choice in Chester Arthur, who had been the port collector for the city of New York and then fired by Rutherford Hayes pretty famously. In the general election, the Democrats will field Winfield Scott Hancock, a hero from the Civil War, who appeared to be out of touch with the political issues. The Republicans started advocating for a high tariff, and Hancock called it a local issue. Neither candidate was particularly active, with Garfield staying home in Mentor, giving speeches on the front porch of his lawn field estate. Except every now and then he would try to woo powerful individuals like Roscoe Conkling to try to unify the Republican Party. The popular vote will go right down to the wire, with Garfield barely winning 48.3% to 48.2%, a difference of just under 10,000 votes. But the Electoral College will be much more decisive, and Garfield will become our 20th president. Garfield, like Hayes before him, is going to be pushing for civil service reform, breaking with Roscoe Conkling when he is going to be putting together his appointments, including for the Port of New York. Conkling tried to block Garfield's nomination and to exert his dominance in the Senate, but Garfield will prevail and contribute to Conkling having to resign from office. He says he's going to do it basically as a threat. They call his bluff, and then they move on from him. (laughs) He does not get what he wants. Garfield had pretty big plans with his Secretary of State, James Blaine, in ramping up American trade and our military, as well as our involvement in the rest of the Western Hemisphere. But of course, everything is going to be put on hold when he is going to be shot very early on in early July of 1881, just four months after taking office. We will discuss much more on his assassination in season three, but you likely know that James was on his way to join his wife at the Jersey Shore, and then he will languish in pain for over two months before dying in September. He meets with his cabinet just once in late July but everybody is told ahead of time to avoid talking about anything upsetting, so they really don't get much accomplished. And he's going to be basically starving to death at one point and is going to be in a lot of physical pain, so he isn't able to do anything that would really kind of get things organized. He isn't able to establish much of what we would consider to be a presidential legacy. And it's just unfortunate, we've talked about this before, you know, that he really would have been um, somebody who was a game changer, I believe, and somebody who was looking to challenge his own party and not go along with things like his two predecessors. So it really would have been interesting to see what James Garfield, what he would have responded to and what he would have put in place. And, you know, it's just one of those real tragedies in American history. And the fact that we talked about last week that he gets forgotten, he gets lumped in with people like Benjamin Harrison and Rutherford Hayes, who I, I just believe thoroughly that James Garfield was the better of those three and was somebody who was really kind of forward thinking and really had a lot to offer. And the fact that he's denied a full term and denied anything more than four months is just always going to be one of those things that's a big what if and really upsetting that he eventually gets kind of overlooked when it comes to commemorating his murder, when it comes to commemorating where he lays to rest. A lot of times Garfield is completely overlooked in Cleveland, completely overlooked in Washington, D.C. His was the last of the sites to be recognized of the places where presidents got shot. That happened very recently. It just goes to show just how much Garfield kind of does get the short end of the stick when, in fact, you know, I think he might have been one of our best presidents had he been able to serve a full term and been able to get accomplished what he really set out to do. He would not have been, in my mind, somebody who would have sat back and let Congress run the show. He would have been somebody who really would have pushed forward. In terms of the Garfields in the executive mansion, James and Lucretia had 
followed Rutherford and Lucy Hayes in being very interested in the history and the furnishings of the executive mansion. And Lucretia was especially excited about an appropriation from Congress for repairs to the mansion that would have allowed her to make any updates or put her own touches on the residence. Like I said, Lucretia's health will cause her to put her plans on hold, but those plans will prove really helpful in distracting her while her husband is in pain and trying to recover. They bring her some of those design books. She starts to meet with people who are planning the eventual renovation or repair. And she sets about trying to restore the East Room and two of the parlors. I think it was the red and the green room. And they are actually in the midst of sanding down the walls when James will eventually pass away. Everything will be kind of put on hold. And so those plans will never be realized. James renewed the office arrangement that Grant had had in place, where remember that the residence is also his office, and that second floor would have been where his bedroom is, and then down the hall where he's meeting. And Hayes had wanted to keep those two things really separate, but James is actually going to bring that back in place. And when we see the number of disgruntled office seekers who are going to emerge, this is where we start to draw a line in the sand. His attempts at recovery will also bring much-needed changes to the executive mansion, where most of you are likely aware of the attempts at air conditioning to help keep the president comfortable during the hot summer in the swampy Washington, D.C. The rooms were sweltering to begin with before you stick a bunch of people in there and all of the air that is going to be really kind of feeded and stifling. And they try to use like handheld fans, and that's of course not going to do the work. Finally, Navy engineers will design a system to funnel cold air that they're pumping up from the basement using these really huge tubes, and then be able to cool the president about 20 degrees, which would be very welcome relief at that point. At first, the systems will be so noisy as to need to be silenced for the president's peace of mind at times, but then over time they will be fine-tuned, and of course future occupants will really appreciate that development. One other big addition that Garfield is going to be responsible for is installing an elevator. It of course won't get installed on his watch, but he's the one who's going to be overseeing the plans, and we believe it has a lot to do with his mother intending to live at the White House, where they want to be able to get her up to the residence floors without having to go up the stairs each time. It would have been really helpful when they're moving the president into the mansion, but unfortunately it won't be installed until later, and of course they're working with 1880s engineering. And so it's actually going to cause a lot of structural damage because of the system that they're putting into place and how the hydraulic lifts are going to be you know, causing a lot of tension with the floor beams. And so <laughs> that'll be something that will down the road need to be addressed. But that is one innovation that we see with James Garfield. So now we'll turn our attention to the home. And the Garfields will purchase the home that they'll call Lawnfield in Mentor in 1876. And it was fairly run down when they get it. About nine rooms and does contain 118 acres. James claimed that he wanted a large property to teach his sons the value of farming. It was a cozy fit for the growing family, including James's mother. So James will be doubling the size of the home. The family, just like the Hayes's last week, love their front porch which again will be well-featured in his presidential campaign, where he would deliver speeches on the front porch. Lucretia will use the funds that she received after James's death to add on another addition, bringing the home to over 30 rooms. 
The addition included the memorial library that I talked about, where we'll keep all his records and books and important mementos, including his desk from the House of Representatives. She even had a safe installed for the valuable content, and it is a showpiece, supposedly inspiring President Hayes to arrange his works in his own home, which will eventually lead to the Hayes Library. And one of the really cool features in that vault is going to be the wreath that Queen Victoria had sent for James Garfield's funeral. The home has a kind of rambling feel, as the additions are not all perfectly obscured, most notably at the staircase, which there's kind of like a mezzanine feel, where you're not sure where the floors are supposed to be ending up. Eliza, James's mother, had a bedroom that had several different portraits of James, and his image is captured throughout the house, including in the large entrance parlor. Lucretia will stay in the home until her death, and the family will keep the home until 1936, when the Western Reserve Historical Society takes over the operations and made the home available to the public. The home was named a National Historic Site in 1980, and there was an extensive six-year refurbishment and renovation so that the home and its furnishings could be returned to their 1880s condition, including renovating the front porch. And if you see images of the home from earlier in the 20th century, it always has a very different porch, and now it looks like it would have in James's time. There's also a visitor center with displays, a film, and then a gift shop, and they have a lot of great information on James Garfield, really giving him the museum treatment at that visitor center. So when I have gone to visit, the first trip was in August of 2016. My parents had actually gone to this site before I ever did. They were up in that area of Northeast Ohio doing winery tours, and they just happened to pull off and check out the Garfield home. And this was when I was still really focused on birthplaces and grave sites. And so it was one of those I knew I would get to at some point. I had in my mind what it would be like, and I just thought like after Spiegel Grove, it would be a real lot down, but it was really remarkable the first time that I was able to go inside. My friend Matt Hoekstetler, who you heard in last season's bonus episode, accompanied me to this site for that trip where we met up. It was right after Labor Day, I want to say, in 2016, and we had made an arrangement We were going to meet at the birthplace, and because it was locked, as I talked about in that first one, we decided, well, what else can we check out? And so Matt suggested, let's go up to Mentor. And so we headed up that way and found the home, went through the visitor center and got a tour, and I was really just completely bowled away at how big the house is. I visited the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California, the famous home that the widow had continuously built. And this had a little bit of a feel like that, where the house just expands in almost every direction. And like I said before, it doesn't always make sense, but just a real kind of showpiece for this really sprawling family. And you really get the sense of just how integral James was to everything, where his image is everywhere throughout the house. Where the Hayes's had, you know, the bridge between the different generations with the Garfields, everything is really focused on James Garfield. And so in his mother's room, you have, I think it's something like 15 different images of him in stained glass and in portraits and in photos, that kind of thing. And the same carries through in many of the other rooms. There's a big entrance hall that is at the base of the two different stairs. And so that is a good kind of center meeting point. Then you have this like reception room or drawing room that feels a little bit more homey. I think I referred to it as a family room when I first went. There's also a dining room, and then you have the mother's room off to the side. And then when you go upstairs, it's going to be the whole family and all of their different bedrooms. 
the dining room was really remarkable because of the stained glass and that they really do showcase the large dining room table and then the china that the Garfields would have kept. And then you get a good sense of just how the additions are made in that ground floor where you can see you know, from one area to the next where the house really was kind of expanded and made much more prominent for this rising prominent politician. On the second floor, of course, the big showpiece is going to be that big library. And I immediately was just bowled over by its size. You are completely entranced by the different books and all of the personal effects from James Garfield. And I mentioned before his desk, there's a marble bust of him. There are all of the books that he really enjoyed and all of it is going to really kind of center your ideas about James Garfield and his love of knowledge, what brought him and Lucretia together. And it's a good testament to who she was and and what she meant to him. One of the really cool features that I remember on this visit with my friend Matt was that he was really kind of won over by this desk that James had there. And there was this image of a spider building a web and (laughs) Matt always pays attention to details. And so he definitely noticed that we went into the vault. You got to check out the flowers from Queen Victoria and then all of these other items that were kind of lovingly preserved going through the rest of the house. There were all of the different bedrooms. I remember there being this composite of the different president's photos in a large portrait that ends with James Garfield, which I thought was really remarkable. And then you get a good sense of how the Garfields like to decorate in terms of each of their rooms and does retain some of the personality for each of them. I do remember that we were drawn in the boys' room. They have carpet that includes swastikas, not after the Nazi regime had kind of co-opted that symbol, but prior to that when it still meant something very, very different. And so that was something that has been interesting that they have retained. And you know, more power to them in terms of being able to say this is historical, this is what was here, and we're not going to change that part of it. When I visited a second time, this was on a day that I was going to visit the birthplace for a second time. I really wanted to go inside. And so when I got to the birthplace, I met Debbie Weinkammer, who I talked about in season one, where she's going to give me a lot of background information and really just a complete wealth of knowledge about James Garfield. She also worked at Lawnfield, and so she was able to give me some information about that home and her appreciation for it, and so it definitely made it more exciting for me to go back and visit it a second time. And I know I get some strange looks sometimes when I go to some of these presidential houses when I've gone a second time, a third time, and nothing changes dramatically. There are exceptions, of course, but I just like seeing them a second time. I I really like going to presidential homes, as you've probably guessed from this show. And so um, definitely love going to a repeat viewing and getting to pick up on different things that maybe I didn't recognize the first time around or seeing it in a different season can sometimes be really cool as well. My guide the second time was a complete wealth of knowledge as well. And I think they do a really good job in terms of their staffing where they have people who really know Garfield inside and out. And one of the really tragic parts of James Garfield's story is of course, that when he leaves you know, at the height of his success, being elected president and has all these plans and, and hopes for, the future. And instead, you know, he's not going to come back to the house, but 
having it preserved the way that he left it is something that really is remarkable. The tour was exactly the way I remembered it. I was able to take a few more photographs and better photographs. And this time I really wanted a photo of myself in front of the home. And so I did get all of those things accomplished. But again, certainly after having viewed Spiegel Grove and going to the Harding home in Marion, and then with this one as well, Ohio does really well in terms of presidential homes. If it's that's something that you're interested in. I think Ohio can be a great place to start where you get three really great presidential homes with all the architecture, all of the furnishings, and you get a good sense of the preservation efforts that each of those places is doing a remarkable job with and um, really have to be well noted. Definitely be checking out the website. It is, like I said, run by the National Park System and the People who do the social media for the Garfield home, the Garfield historic site, are second to none. I mean, they are always getting recognition in terms of how funny, how entertaining, and certainly how historically involved they are. They have a lot of really good information and are always looking to mix it up and really give a spotlight to a president who had that torn from him, who... I think really would have been able to accomplish a lot more, been able to give our country a lot more, but unfortunately that was denied him. In terms of what it says about the president, I mean, I just think that you do get the sense of just how loved Garfield was by his family, how important family was to Garfield, and then how important the Garfield legacy is to the people of Mentor, where they have done a really great job of preserving this home and keeping it as a memorial to the Garfields and making sure that it is available to future generations. And it's a home that I remember seeing on the news not too long ago where they're talking about people just like driving by and not stepping in. Yeah, sometimes it can be one of those things where if you live close to a site, you are more likely to overlook it or ignore it and just think, yeah, I'll see it at some point. But this is one I think people in Cleveland would really get a kick out of being able to see and get a good sense of how the president lived in that home with his family and then how a president's legacy can be kind of maintained by the family and and certainly bolstered by future generations and their involvement. And so certainly look forward to seeing what is next for the staff at the Garfield Historic Site and hopefully be able to visit it. I want to go back sometime this, these next few weeks, so I'll see it again very soon. When we come back next week, we'll be going to Chester Arthur's home in New York City, and you might know that this one has been renovated into another use, and so we'll be talking about Chester Arthur in New York City in next week's episode. Remember to be checking out visitingthepresidents.com where you'll have links to other readings. I have my recommended readings for each president. And then I have photographs from my visits when I'm able to, some historic photographs, as well as a map to the site. And so you can definitely get a lot of information from the website as well as from the social media where I'm bringing you all sorts of content from either previous sites or as I'm traveling. If you're wanting to see where Joe is during the summer, I'm trying to keep you updated on the Visiting the President social media. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, be checking those out. You can also be helping support the podcast with donation through PayPal. The link is in the show notes as well as on the website. So be checking that out. And again, any funds received will be used for future trips as well as for maintaining the site, which is to me one the most important thing. In terms of James Garfield content, if you're looking to read more about him, the recommended readings I have for this week are Dark Horse, The Surprise Election, and Political Murder of President James Garfield by Kenneth Ackerman, Garfield by Alan Peskin, 
Then you have the presidencies of James Garfield and Chester Arthur by Justice Denecki. And of course, we'll be talking about some of the other books that most of you are thinking about, especially like Candace Millard's Destiny of the Republic, more in season three, but definitely a good thing to get started with. All season, I've been using Away from the White House about presidential travels, as well as Homes of the Presidents, Houses of the Presidents, Joshua Kendall's First Dads, and then The Complete Book of U.S. Presidents by William D. Gregorio. So you can be checking any of those out. Highly recommended. I've also been using William Seals. The President's Home, and again, that one is just a wealth of information about each president and their time in the Executive Mansion or White House. I look forward to seeing you next week, like I said, when we go back to Chester Arthur and get to see what he's up to in New York City. And I look forward to seeing you out there on the road as we continue to visit the presidents. See ya. We're also getting set for the Season 2 Grover Cleveland Question and Answer episode. So if you have a particular question that you want to have answered on the show, please be reaching out either on the Instagram or Twitter, Facebook. You can have my email address at jdfayko at gmail.com and send me your question. I loved last season's question and answer episode, and I think this one's going to be even better. So make sure you send in your question.